Hello, I'm Brent Siddle and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm joined once again by Lewis Marcos, Professor in English at Houston Baptist University in the States. Lewis is no stranger to this podcast, having appeared in earlier episodes to talk about how Plato points to Christ and how the great Greek and Roman classics point to Christ. And he's back today by popular demand. I have to tell you this, brother. People rang me up and said, we want him back. Get him back. Oh, <laughs> thank you. It's great. It's great to be back on. Though I'm absolutely fascinated by uh, by how the Greek and Roman myths pointed to Christ. Anyway, he's joining me today to talk about a very different subject, the great Victorian poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, and indeed to talk about the Victorians in general and the Victorian age. And his book, Pressing Forward, Alfred Lord Tennyson and the Victorian Age, is published by Sapientia Press in the States. Lewis, hi, welcome back to the show. So good to be back on and uh, looking, looking forward to our conversation. Oh yeah, this this is a this is a great one. The Victorian age is so fascinating, and it's so fascinating as you point out in the book because it's an age or period that's so very much like our own. I really think it is, and of course that's a cliche to say that, but I think it's true because we are still wrestling with the same things that they were wrestling with. They were the first people to really wrestle with creation and evolution, the first people to wrestle with the industrial revolution and what that means. The first people to really wrestle with the idea of utilitarianism, with the good and bad about progress, with certain um, uh, certain controversial issues of authority and where authority comes from. All of these things are coming out really for the first time. And remember, Brent, we, we have in common that we're both colonials at heart, I suppose. Uh, so we've inherited uh, that 19th century. And I don't, I don't know if the British are even allowed to feel any uh, victory or, or you know, uh, you know, admiration, because that was the time of the British Empire. I don't even know if they're allowed to learn anything from them, but we need to learn from them because they they went ahead. They got some things right and some things wrong. But we are, again, still in that age in many ways. I think I think most of the British are embarrassed about it from what I learned when I was in England. But anyway, there we go. What can the Victorian period teach us? Wow. Well, first of all, it it teaches us that I guess today a lot of people are talking about worldview. For a while, we said paradigm, right? The the controlling assumptions and hypotheses on which all of our other ideas are based. And I think they didn't necessarily use the word worldview. Of course, it's really a German word. Uh, what's it? Weltanschung is, is where worldview comes from directly. That's why it's one word instead of two. All those compound German nouns, right? Uh, and I think they were ones that started to realize that, say, evolution and creation are not just a debate over, say, literal days or figurative days. It's a much bigger and deeper and more earth-shattering debate. And that is, what is the nature of reality? Is reality a top-down affair? That's the the Judeo-Christian, and even to a certain extent, higher Greco-Roman, say Plato-Aristotle view, that you start up there with the spiritual and it moves down. Or the evolutionary view says the absolute opposite. Everything is bottom up. You start with material things. You start with natural processes, physical things, and everything evolves out of that, including ultimately God, including our own consciousness itself. So I believe that the Victorians really understood what 
was at issue and why they saw how important these debates were. And they were pretty open about it. Uh, and, you know, we have Richard Dawkins, they had T.H. Huxley. Nothing's really changed. We had the desire to return to orthodoxy. They had Cardinal Newman. And even though Cardinal Newman left the Anglican Church to become a Catholic, if you today are a truly believing, small-O Orthodox Protestant, we need to learn from Cardinal Newman, right? That doesn't mean we're going to follow him into the Catholic Church, but it does mean that he saw the comeuppance that was going to happen if you accepted these modernist, progressive uh, underpinnings. And so, again, they open our eyes, and they were able to debate these things like ladies and gentlemen, okay? Back then, before there was TV, before there was even radio, people actually read magazines and journals in which these things were debated in beautifully written prose. <laughs> yes, a thing of the past, I fear. In, in what sense did the Victorian period suffer a crisis of faith? They really did. Now, you need to understand that with evolution came two things that set them in crisis. We'll get to the obvious one later. But the first one was this idea that the earth has been a center of conflict and life and fighting and death, not for 6,000 years or 60,000 or 600,000. But now they thought billions and billions and billions. Now the Big Bang has put a limit of about 4 billion, uh, which is still a lot of time, but different than trillions. They, you know, that's why... Darwinian evolution doesn't work. First of all, it wouldn't work anyway. But even if it did, it would need, you know, multiple billions of years. Four billion is not that much from the point of view of Darwin. But it's the idea that they were wrong about this. But a lot of people thought if the Earth is really, really, really old, then somehow that makes us insignificant. So they were the sort of thing that happened was it was a Carl Sagan. It was a Richard Dawkins calling us the blue dot in space as if the knowledge that our Earth was minuscule in compared to the vastness of the universe had any meaning that were unimportant. I mean, really, is someone who's five feet tall less significant than someone who's six feet tall? It's a nonsense statement, but a lot of people have bought into that fear. They never thought that maybe the universe has to be that vast to allow for the kind of human life we have on our little blue dot. See, this is what they started struggling with back and forth. So they were thrown into that. And before we go on, I want to say something to your listeners that's very important because a lot of Christians struggle with this, okay? Are we 6,000, 600,000, 6 million? All right. Even if it's old, right? Even if creation was very, very old. If you really read the Bible carefully, right? We can't exactly date the flood or Babel. Really, God's, the initiation of God's direct work in human history, right? I mean, you have the fall, you have all of that, but the beginning of God's redemptive plan really begins with Abraham. And Abraham is about 2000 BC. So between us and Abraham is only 4,000 years. If you live to the age of 80, which is very possible these days, uh, if you live to 80, your lifespan will have made up 2% of that 4,000 years. Even if you die at the age of 40, 1%. Now I'm a Baptist, so I don't bet. But that's betting odds. 1% is not bad, okay? Right? So what I'm getting at is 
even if you're struggling with that, maybe the earth is really old. I don't think there's any good evidence that humanity is much older than 10,000, but maybe the earth's old. But it doesn't make a difference. We are very much a part, historically, of the work that God is doing in human history. So that's number one. The other one, though, is are you saying that there's no design in the world, that there's no purpose, that everything's random? That Those are two of the things that, that set people into crisis. Maybe there is a God, but maybe he's not involved. Maybe, he, you know, he's the deist God. He winds up the watch and lets it go. Laws of nature never gets involved. All of these things suddenly suggested a world that had lost its supernatural intimacy. And people still struggle with this today, but Mm. We better come on and talk about Alfred Lord Tennyson, who very much embodies this period as, and if we have time, some of these other characters that you write about, because they're all fascinating. John Stuart Mill, Newman, Carlyle, Ruskin, I'd love to talk about them as well. But let's come on to Tennyson. In what ways does In Memoriam, Tennyson's probably most famous poem, embody all of the Victorian sense of struggle and grief and doubt? I really, I mean, I love all the epics, and that's what I particularly teach. Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton, Tennyson. What's unbelievable about In Memoriam, even Homer and Virgil, whom I love, there's lots of film in there, okay? There's, there's lots of part, but there's lots of boring bits, right? But I would argue that In Memoriam, which is made up of about 130 so individual poems that are sort of woven together, but they all stand on their own. I would argue that every single one of those poems is good. There may be a few that aren't great, but I don't really, there's no dead weight. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said In Memoriam is like a coral reef that it's made up of living material. And it is so moving. You know, okay, what happened was Tennyson was a very shy young man, always withdrawn. And then he went to Cambridge and he became part of a group and he became best friends with a man named Arthur Henry Hallam, who, by the way, was also best friends with Gladstone and a lot of other people of the day. And Hallam is that kind of friend that every shy person needs because he's the kind that draws you out of yourself, that gets you to join groups, that encourages all of that sort of stuff. And Tennyson kind of came out of the shell and he wrote some great poetry. But if this guy Hallam had died, Tennyson would have been considered a minor romantic. He would have been a kind of uh, uh, disciple of Keats. And some of his early stuff is beautiful, right? But he would not be the great poet he was if not when he was only in his early 20s, Hallam died. And it just threw Tennyson. He, he died of a, of a sudden disease that he contracted over when he was in Austria, I think, Vienna. And Tennyson just was plunged into grief. Now, while he was continuing to write other poetry, and he was fairly successful, but not super successful yet. But as he was writing other poetry, he started writing private poems dealing with his grief over Helen. And he wrote those poems for 10 plus years. And at first, he really only meant them for himself. No thought of publication. But over the years, uh, he started writing in 1933. And he published in memoriam, I'm sorry, 1833, and he published in 1850. Now, he probably didn't write for 17 years, but for many of those times, he's writing, writing, writing. Now, here's the great thing. Okay. If a modern Christian writer, like a famous Christian writer, let's say 
somebody in their family died and they went through all sorts of grief. And then they decided to publish their journal. Most Christian publishers, at least in America, would probably tell him, go back and make the earlier chapters less despairing. We don't want these readers to think you lost your faith, right? Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. And so when you work your way through in memoriam, you are struggling and suffering with Tennyson as he struggles himself back to faith and hope and all of those things. Now, here's the great part. Again, I think it's 131 poems make up in memoriam. But in the beginning, the poems are more personal. But as Tennyson began to write them, he seemed to have remembered that he wasn't just a personal griever. It wasn't just John Keats, right? That he was also a public poet, kind of a Victorian poet. And he needed to wrestle not only with his private grief, but with the public struggles of his day. And so even though, remember, uh, 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 Origin of Species is uh, 1859, okay? 15 years before Origin of Species, uh, Tennyson, who was a big reader in science, is already struggling, not just with is it true or not, but what are the implications? He already understands that if what Darwin is going to say is right, that everything came out of a survival of the fittest, natural selection. And what does that say? And he began to struggle that maybe life is meaningless. Then he began to struggle. Is the soul immortal? Will I ever see Hallam again? But that started to make him struggle with just the whole idea of progress. Is it worth it? Are we all going to die and it's gone and everything's leading? And someday we, homo sapiens, will be extinct like the dinosaurs? Then what's the point? In fact, we're a joke. The dinosaurs are better off than us because at least they didn't have reason. They never thought they were the crowning race of creation. But look how pathetic we might be. So in fits and starts, he's struggling with all those things, but he's slowly moving towards a resolution, resolving his personal grief, resolving his fear that the soul is not immortal, resolving what science seems to be saying. All of these things. Uh, he, he, he takes us on a journey and he becomes a private griever who becomes a public wrestler. And we wrestle alongside him in poetry that is unbelievably simple and direct while being unbelievably layered in deeper and deeper meaning. There's very few poets that get Wordsworth does it in his best. The early William Blake does that until he came kind of nuts. Uh, uh, in our country, America, I mean, uh, Robert Frost is a little bit like that. You know, these, I love T.S. Eliot, great Christian poet, but you don't understand what he's talking about until you've got all the notes. But In Memoriam has a sort of simple and direct meaning that a young person can understand. But, you know, a professor of this, you can keep studying and studying and studying and going deeper and deeper. How was Tennyson able to fashion a new relationship to religion and science as he went through the grieving process? One of the things he does, an example of it is, earlier in the poem, he starts to say, if this evolutionary scheme is true, then everything seems to be meaningless. Where, where is it meaning? We're all going to die. There's no care. There's nothing. But then he sort of stepped back and looked at it again from a sort of wider, more holistic view. And suddenly he said, wait a minute. 
as I look at this again, there does seem to be direction and purpose and design. Everything seems to be getting more complex. Reason, right? In other words, what I looked at is I'm starting to see something that's going up, right? That's getting better and better. So that, the, the again, I'm not saying I believe this. Uh, I still think that the, the caveman is the best example of science fiction of all time. Uh, no, almost no real proof of it. They were human beings, just like we are. But anyway, if, from Tennyson's limited view, okay, uh, from Tennyson's limited view, before we actually did the paleontology and saw that there are none of these transitional animals, okay? But anyway, so going back from what he knew, maybe the same movement from amoeba to hominid is the same movement from ape man, if you will, to modern man, is the same movement from the the, 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 the child in the womb to the full-grown adult. Everything seemed to be suggestive of growth and progress. The phrase they used was ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And what that means, that fancy word is, in every individual, you see the same movement that you see in the species as a whole. Most of your listeners have probably seen the famous heckle drawings of embryology and how the embryo in the womb seems to move from looking like whatever, a tadpole to a frog, to a fetal pig, to a chicken moving forward. Now, I need to say, because I write about this, that those heckle drawings have now shown to be false, okay? Uh, and in fact, at the earliest stages, the human embryo is absolutely distinct from other animals. So uh, that doesn't prove evolution, folks. And that's been disproved for 50 years but it keeps appearing in evolutionary textbooks with no admission that it is false and was actually doctored by a guy named Heckel, who was also actually a Nazi and believed in racial purity. But anyway, we'll go there. Let's not blame Tennyson for not knowing something that we didn't know for 50 years. Okay, From the evidence that he was given, he was trying to put these things together. And I think he really can. Now, Tennyson, if, if the best thing to say of Tennyson is he was a theistic evolutionist. I believe if Tennyson was living today and saw all the evidence, he probably would be closer to intelligent design, probably would not be a six-day literal creationist. But I think if he had the evidence we have now, he would see greater design. But even back then, he was not a simple evolutionist. He saw purpose and direction, and it was all moving upward, up, up, up. Now, Tennyson, again, in his day was very important. As I look back to him, I can fault him a little bit for maybe being one of those people that helped do that whole idea where, all right, we'll, we'll let the science people do with the logic and the reason, and we in the church will deal with faith and all that sort of stuff and feeling and whatnot. Again, I think he came up with the best compromise he could in his day. I do think personally we can move beyond that, but I don't want to attack Tennyson and, and judge him unfairly. I think with what he had and with what was going on, and again, science did really seem like it was proving Darwinism. Today, Darwin would not be a Darwinist because he had no idea of the unbelievable complexity of the DNA. He thought the gene was a little simple thing. So again, we have to be fair to Tennyson. Based on what he knew at the time, it seemed that this evolutionary thing had been proven, 
right? They, they hadn't really done enough paleontology yet. Uh, so let's see how we fit it together. And, and all of us, you know, if we're believers, we do need to use our mind. We need to try to come. So here is Tennyson trying to find hope and meaning and purpose and doing it in this unbelievably human and intimate way. And he did have a lot of faith that we were perfecting ourselves. Now, World War I pretty much destroyed that faith, and then the atom bomb in World War II. Uh, but again, the Victorians, they seem to believe that we're going to build a better world. And you know what, Brent? Look, I think Christians, if they're wise today, know, right, that even if we had universal education and universal health care and all that sort of stuff, we're not going to be perfect. Because the problem with man is sin. It's internal, okay? But again, from this point of view, and here's the weird thing. I do think as Christians, we are called to do what we can to alleviate poverty, alleviate ignorance, and bring about health. And of course, all the great advances were done by Christians uh, in that anyway. There are no atheist hospitals and orphanages and things like that, okay? So we need to do that. And that is important. And again, you, you think of the British Empire. They spread the gospel and they did a great job, but they're also kind of responsible for what we call the social gospel today. And that's like, just fix their bodies and leave it at that. Okay, so this is a mixed bag. We need to have discernment. But I would say that Tennyson has more good to give and we, we need to give him the benefit of the doubt and see how through his poetry, he is making connections to help us understand what's happening and how the human species is. I mean, we are developing, right? Uh, and, 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 and how an individual can deal with loss and how a society can deal with loss at the same time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 terrific. In the time we've got left, I want to ask you a bit about Thomas Carlyle and John Ruskin, at least, because they're two, okay. uh, two more Amazing. equally fascinating characters caught up in this whole Victorian um, conflict, I suppose, between scientific progress and faith. How do Carlyle and Ruskin offer a strong critique of the Victorian idea of progress? Good. And I, I'll just say quickly, I don't have a chapter in my book, but if you want maybe the best simple book to show the dangers of utilitarianism, everything's about utility and progress and all of that, with it, read Hard Times by Charles Dickens, mm, you know, the famous yes. Charles Dickens. That's about a three, one of his shortest books, only about 300 pages. I, I, it's just not what I dealt with. I didn't deal with novels in this book. But he does it well. Okay, but well, let's start with Ruskin. People don't What I want is facts, sir. Uh, give me yeah, facts, facts and only facts. facts, facts. Says, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Gradgrind. His, his name was Thomas Gradgrind. You Gradgrind. got it. And, That's right. And yeah. his assistant is is Mr. McChokumchild. Mm. <laughs> That's the name. So anyway, it's a wonderful name. And uh, but but and and and, and uh, actually, I think Hard Times was inscribed to Carlyle, actually, if I remember. Uh, but anyway, so we'll start with uh, with Ruskin. People don't understand. Ruskin dominated art criticism for almost 50 years. It's unbelievable. Okay. He's still very, very influential. But let me start with Carlyle wrote a wonderful, I'm sorry. Uh, Ruskin wrote a wonderful book called The Stones of Venice. And it's about Gothic cathedrals. And he really believed that Gothic cathedrals were sort of the height of human creativity. And what you think? Okay. The most expensive glass out there is Venetian glass. I think it's called Murano, I think is what it's called, right? And, what, and the funny thing is, Venetian glass is super expensive, 
but it's not perfect. What I mean by that is you look at the glass and you'll see globs of paint because it is made by a real human being. It is an intimate human process. And, and the cheap beads that we buy, the cheap glass is in a sense more perfect because it's made by machines, but it's not as valuable or precious. And he said, now let's be fair. One of the reasons that we as middle-class and even poor people can have things is because we have conveyor belt things. You know, we have, do you have Walmart in New Zealand? Uh, yes, I like believe it? so. I think so. Okay, mm. something like that. Okay, the, you know, the, this mass-produced stuff. In one sense, that's very democratizing because it allows people to have fairly nice furniture and all. But what if we lost? We've lost the beauty of human creation. And what happens is that, okay, to make this stuff, you not only have to industrialize, you have to make the worker into a sort of machine or robot and steal some of his humanity. So he becomes a sort of a, a compass or something. He becomes a saw rather than a full human being. And he's arguing against this and saying that what's wonderful about the Gothic cathedral is that there was a master craftsman, but everyone else was free to bring their creativity, but under, over an overarching mind, but it wasn't slave labor like the pyramids or something where everything is exact, exact, exact. There was this ability to have individual integrity within this overall thing. So he said, stop worshiping perfection. Perfection is a sign of death. Life is imperfect. Right? Uh, the, the best example is, this is when we were like little kids, but they used to do this thing where a woman would put a beauty mark on her face. Remember that? It's, it's, basically, it looks like a mole. Now, why would you put an imperfection on your face? And the idea is that that imperfection somehow adds to the overall beauty because absolute precision perfection is almost inhuman. It's not beautiful. So he said, we need to understand what we're sacrificing in, in basically uh, assembly lining everything. And he fought for an art and even an architecture that had hum humanity to it and didn't press us into a mold, right? And, and this is just, just to give you an example of, of today. This is only in this sense should a, a Christian be an environmentalist, in the sense that we're a steward of nature and want to preserve its beauty. But modern environmentalism says man is the problem and worships nature. Okay, so we have, we have to be careful. Okay? But a, a correct understanding of this is very Christian because it's very human and uses the gifts God has given us. Now, Carlyle's an issue. Carlyle was a big, big critic of utilitarianism and, again, making everything perfect and whatnot, because he said, look, you can give someone every creature comfort there is, but you still haven't filled the void in his soul. He says something like the work of every uh, factory out there and every this and this can't even uh, gather together to make one shoeshine boy happy because that shoeshine boy has a, 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 a vacuum in his soul that is bigger than the whole universe. So both Carlyle and, and Ruskin are arguing for humanity, uh, measuring things by human things and not making everything into a machine.
Mm. Uh, and so, they, but what I'm saying is, this is only the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They already saw the dangers and were shouting out against it and calling us to not sacrifice our humanity for the sake of efficiency. Mm. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, and then we're going to have to sadly finish because we're just about out of time on this call. The seconds are ticking down. Talk about machines. <laughs> We're all uh, prisoners. Anyway, thank you so much. Lewis Marcos, professor in English at Houston Baptist University in the States, and the book is a fascinating one. Uh, Pressing forward, Alfred Lord Tennyson and the Victorian Age. If you want to understand all about Victorianism, this is probably the book to do it with. It's fantastic, and it's published by Sapientia Press in the States. Lewis, as always, thank you so much. Great to be back on. Blessings to everyone. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.